a few days ago, actually, I was playing basketball with a bunch of guys. We were playing against a team that were um, a lot taller than our team. I think um, our tallest guy was shorter than their tallest, their shortest guy. I mean, they all had guys 6'2 and above. Our tallest guy was 6'1. Playing the whole game, I think I got one rebound. It's the whole game. I felt so helpless out there. I felt like I was so ineffective as a player because they were so much taller and stronger than I was and we were. Well, that kind of helplessness is what I feel when I um, stand next to a hospital bed with someone who is ill. I feel so helpless. My utter lack of any ability to affect change, I confront it dead on. Also, when I'm counseling someone with spiritual pain, not physical pain, but spiritual pain, emotional pain or suffering, I sense uh, equal helplessness. It is at such times that I am humbled and broken because I confront and I come face to face with my limitation as a human being. That I am not able to uh, affect the will that I have, affect change according to my will. And it is, it is at such times that um, difficult and, and paralyzing questions arise. I mean, I think we've all been there through our sufferings and our trials. We've all been there. Questions like, why do the righteous suffer? Why is it that the righteous suffer and the unrighteous, they seem to have a carefree life, a burden-free, joyful life, that suffering seem, seems not to touch their lives with their family. This was a dilemma of Asaph in Psalm 73. Remember him? While he was pouring out his pain and disappointment in the temple of God, he considered the unrighteous and he says, I envy the arrogant when I saw their prosperity. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human, human ills. Why is it that the righteous suffer at the same time, the unrighteous prosper. Another question that plagues me at times is a question, is there a purpose to suffering? Is there a purpose to suffering? Does God have, did God design this? And if God did, and of course God did, what is the purpose of our suffering? Is there any redemptive value in our lives or is it all for nothing? And also that grand question, where is God in our suffering? Where is God in our suffering? It is part of God's design and will. Or if, if it is, then where is God? Why is it that at the hour of the greatest need, God seems to be the furthest away? When, when I need God the least, He's right there. When I need God the most, He seems furthest away. Why? wrestled with such questions this week and with such questions I went to the scriptures these past few days and I found great encouragement from the scriptures I found great answers and great encouragements from a man named Apostle Paul and not just the Apostle Paul found in the New Testament but specifically the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul found in 2nd Corinthians Paul that is found in this um, passion-filled epistle, passion-filled letter. Now, if you know Paul in any degree, you would say that Paul is one of those men who seems almost unreal. 
almost superhuman in his devotion to Christ. In his commitment to God and commitment to God's word, he is a picture of self-discipline and focus. I mean, this is a man who knows what he's been called to, and he does it. He follows through in his life. He sometimes appears almost, again, apart from the regular Christians that we're exposed to. You and I, he seems definitely above us, made from a different mold, superhuman, super-Christian. But in this letter, 2 Corinthians, we find revealed here the most human Paul we find in the New Testament. We find Paul with all his scars and his bruises and his pain and disappointments. Reveals a very human Paul with whom we can all identify. We find here not just Paul's circumstances, not just his doctrine, not just his deep theology, but we discover Paul's heart. He lays bare his heart before his readers. Paul is more transparent here about his inward feelings and motivations than anywhere else in the New Testament. But other epistles like Romans and Galatians might be more profound, might be more doctrinal and theological. But none could be more precious than this hard-pouring letter to the Corinthians. George Herbert exclaimed, quote, what an admirable epistle is this epistle. How full of affections. He rejoices, he is sorrowful, he grieves, and he glorifies. Never was there such tender care for a church by a mere man. Of all the epistles, this epistle is the one which contains the most intimate revelations. And few can read it without loving as well as honoring the author. End quote. You know, I'm not sure how Paul wrote Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, but I know, I am personally convinced that Paul wrote this epistle, 2 Corinthians, with tears in his eyes. With tears flowing from his eyes. This whole book flows with raw passion and emotion. And particularly chapters 10 through 13 and we'll be studying chapter 12 today, is probably the most emotionally charged text that Paul ever penned. It, this whole epistle supplies us with much information about Paul's sufferings. It gives us a very graphic snapshot of the sufferings that he experienced as a servant of God. Turn with me to chapter 1 of this letter. Verses 8 through 11, Paul tells them that we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, set our hope he will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping us through your prayers that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. Paul lists the the gravity of the afflictions and the sufferings that he and his co-workers were going through as they, as they ministered in Asia. He says that his affliction was such that he lost any hope for survival. He did
did not simply fear that he would die. He was convinced that he would die. And he was convinced, verse 10, that he would die a great death, a perilous death. Verse 10, who delivered us so great a peril of death. Paul is saying that he, is, he was not only certain he would die, that he was certain he would die a great death, a painful, excruciating death. Paul says that it was a burden so great that it was even beyond his strength to endure it. I mean, that's amazing. The pain was so great. The suffering was so intense. Even for the apostle Paul, he surrendered. He said, too much. Can't do it. I quit. I'm not able. Even Paul has his limits. And the sufferings that he experienced in Asia surpassed those limits. Go with me to chapter 11. And he kind of wants to share his life with the Corinthian church. And he lists all the things that he endured as an apostle of Christ. Verse 23. This is his resume, if you will. They, they accuse him of being a false apostle. Being a... Uh, not really being called by God, not being really called by Christ. And these are his credentials. Verse 23, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews of 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, from bandits, from my own countrymen, from Gentiles in the city, in the country, at the sea, danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst. I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. Besides all of this, I face every day the pressure of my concern for all the churches. You know, Luke records the exploits of Paul in his book Acts. But we discover, discover from this passage that that's just tip of the iceberg. Luke was just writing snippets of all the sufferings that Paul endured as a minister of Christ. You know, in chapter 1, we read this. Paul said he was so discouraged that in his hearts, in, his, in their hearts, we felt a sentence of death. He said, physically, we're wasting away. Physically, I was convinced I was, was going to die. In my heart, I was already dead. In my spirit, in my inner man, he was gone. But you know what? What Paul says is incredible. So radical. He says that these physical pains that he endured, Pales in paled in comparison to the spiritual pain that he endured. But the greatest pain in his life was not physical. It was not it wasn't the rods. Because you know they were welt and bruised, scab, and he would be healed and he would move on. The lashes, it would be painful for the moment, but they were momentary. The lasting pain, the agonizing pain, was the spiritual pain that he received from fellow Christians, particularly the Christians in the city of Corinth. The greatest pain he ever knew came from the people that he loved the most. That's the heartache of ministry. 
for all of you in ministry, you'll, you, you've discovered this or you will discover this. You're not going to feel disappointment and pain and suffering from, and heartache from people halfway around the world, people you don't know. The greatest pain, the disappointments, the frustrations you experience is people that are closest to you, people that you let into your heart, that you share, you're dying with, you, you, you share communion with, you share fellowship with, and that was the experience of Paul. It seemed that at this church in Corinth, there was a full revolt against him. There was a group within this church that accused him of being a false apostle. He was not one of the twelve. They accused him of being an imposter, of having wrong motives. They said, you know what? Paul is ministering because he's greedy for money. You know, when he asks for offering to help the Jerusalem church because of famine, you know what? He's not giving to the Jerusalem church. He's pocketing those funds. That's what's motivating him for the ministry of the Lord. We accuse him of being a coward. Look at Paul. All we hear is persecution breaks out and he leaves. He's a coward. He will not. He talks big, but he will not stand and suffer for Christ. They attacked his character. Accused him of having a Duplicitous, duplicitous life where he lived a more loose life in private while publicly he lived a moral life. And above all this, they criticized, criticized him of being a poor speaker. 2 Corinthians 10.10 10. His writing is powerful, but his speaking amounts to nothing. Man, they know how to hurt a guy. That's hidden below the belt. You know, as a, as a preacher, as a pastor, you can criticize my skills on the court. You know, it's true. You can criticize my looks. It's all right. You know, my personality. But you tell me, James, you're a lousy speaker. Man, that hurts. That's hidden below the belt. They knew how to hurt Paul, and they, they ended it with a, criticizing his speech, criticizing his, his sermons, his, his teaching of the Word of God. Paul loved them, yet led by these false teachers, they rejected Paul and some even hated him. Chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. Paul says, I have spoken freely to you. Corinthians, open wide your hearts to me. I've opened my heart wide to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. He says, I love you with all my heart, my co-workers. And yet, you are not reciprocating this love towards us. Why will you not open your hearts to the men who have taught you the word of God, who love you and pray for you and serve you in the Lord? But you know what? Ultimately, this is not a letter of despair or disappointment. Ultimately, it is not. Ultimately, this is a letter that reveals the depth of Paul's faith and also the depth of Paul's love for God's churches. Wait, go with me to chapter 6. A wonderful passage that in my hours of disappointment and struggle, I turn to often and just, I just touch the letters as I read because they're so powerful. They're so filled with with truth. Chapter 6, verse 4, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. We, we push ourselves in every way. 
in endurance, in troubles, in hardships, in distresses. We lean forward in beatings, imprisonments, riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. We give ourselves to be pure, verse 6, to be understanding, patient, and kind in the Holy Spirit and sincere love. In truthful speech and the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand, and the left through glory and dishonor. We, we endure through bad report and good report. Though we're genuine, we're regarded as imposters. Though we're known to you, we're regarded as unknown. We're dying, yet we live on. We're beaten and we're not killed. Verse 10. I love this. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I love that. He's full of sorrow. He's drowning in sorrow. But I'm always full of joy. I am poor. I have no money. None to give to you, none to offer. But I make many rich. I make people rich. Well, how? Through the gospel of Christ. I have nothing. I don't have any possessions. Yet, I, yet possessing everything. I have everything because I'm a Christian. Because I am saved. I have the kingdom of God. Paul shows the depth of his faith in Christ and the depth of his love for the churches through these epistles, through this epistle. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul outlines, gives a synopsis of the problem that he was confronting, the purpose of that suffering, and his personal resolution. He he paints with broad strokes in the first 11 chapters, first 12 chapters. Here, 7 through 10, he comes to the conclusion. This was a problem. This is God's purpose. And this is my resolution. Go with me to verse 7, and we will find Paul's problem. Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations. They were, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Paul says that God gave him, that was given him, a thorn in his flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan. Thorn, it's literally, it's not a little prickly thorn. Literally, in the Greek, it is a stake. A sharpened wooden shaft used to impale or torture someone. Paul says, that was given to me. To torture me, to impale me. Right. Now, we're not exactly sure what this thorn, this stake was. We're not exactly sure. Some commentators say that it was a physical malady. Others say he had a speech impediment. Others say it was epileptic seizures or other sickness. One English commentator says that it was Paul's wife. Right? I didn't say that. One English commentator said the storm was Paul's wife. You remember Job? He lost everything. God boils his whole body. He's suffering. And he goes to his wife, help me. And what does she say? Why don't you curse God and die? Job's like, God, you forgot somebody. They <laughs> <laughs> didn't take her. <laughs> bad joke, bad joke. Well, we don't know what this um, thorn was. Um, the answers can be many, but I think there was a messenger of Satan gives us a clue. Most likely this thorn was a person most likely the ringleader of this group at Corinth that was opposing Paul. There was one man who was leading this attack against Paul, attacking Paul and his ministry, turning the church that he loved against 
Paul himself. Paul was tormented by his attacks. He says the word torment, the Greek word is punished, literally to strike with fists. Though their attacks were verbal in nature, to Paul they were physical and violent uh, afflictions given to him in his spirit. <clears throat> Paul says that's the problem. But Paul here outlines for us the purpose of that suffering. Purpose of this affliction. <clears throat> Guys, <clears throat> whatever the suffering that we all endure in life, it is all within the will of God. God has a divine purpose behind everything, especially our sufferings. And every man suffers, Christian or non-Christian. And definitely, Paul says, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted, will suffer. For some of you, you have not suffered yet. You really haven't. You know, I read that Katie Couric, until her husband passed away a few years ago, she said her greatest disappointment in life was not making the varsity cheer squad in her high school. In her high school. I mean, her whole, her whole life. She said she never experienced any kind of suffering. The greatest disappointment was not making the cheerleader leading team. Well, maybe that's some of you today. You know, God has protected you, but you can guarantee suffering will come into your life. For some of you, you guys are seasoned veterans in suffering. But you, we must understand, we must know that God is behind everything, especially suffering. Suffering has manifold many purposes. Let's give you, give you a few. First of all, sufferings make us more like Christ. Sufferings make us more like Christ. Romans 8.28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. God uses everything. God works everything. The good and above all the bad. God works. God orchestrates it. For the good according to His purpose. And what is His purpose? It's so important. Verse 29. To be conformed to the image of His Son. God's purpose is not for us to have a carefree, easy life. It's not a comfortable, easy existence. God orchestrates everything. To make us more like Christ. That's the purpose. And that's the role that's suffering. That's a purifying effect. Causing us to follow Christ. Make us more like Christ. Secondly, suffering as a saint is God's means of drawing us into a greater knowledge of Him. Suffering is God's way of drawing us into a greater knowledge of God. This is FOF part 2. FOF 1 is picking attributes of God and learning in theory, in our minds, the attributes of God. Suffering enables us with our whole lives to know God, to know God's compassion, to know God's mercy, to experience firsthand the comfort of God. Experience firsthand the comfort of God. That is why Paul tells, Peter tells his readers in 1 Peter 4.13 to rejoice in his sufferings. That is why Paul says in Philippians 3 that his former status as a Pharisee was refuse. It was excrement. It was dung. But his sufferings in Christ are a precious treasure. Why? Because all these sufferings are ways that God uses to us to draw near to God, to understand Him fully in a greater way. 
And finally, suffering produces maturity and godly character. Suffering produces maturity and godly character. James 1, 2, 3, and 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your, of your faith will develop perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work. So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Right. How can we become mature and complete Christians? It is through suffering. It is through heartache and pain and disappointments. Right. There are no shortcuts to spiritual maturity. It's not by going to seminary. It is not by learning Greek. It is not by reading many books and listening to many sermons. True maturity in Christ comes by living life in the real world and enduring suffering as a Christian. There are so many who want the doctrine of Paul, but they don't want his life. I love Paul's doctrines. I love his theology. But to live like Paul, to suffer for Christ like Paul, to give my life holy like to God like Paul? No way. I just want his theology, not his life. Oh, if you don't want his life, if you don't want his suffering, then you don't want maturity either. You don't, wanna, you don't want godly character. That's what you're saying. J. Oswald Sanders, he wrote that book, Spiritual Leadership. He once said there are three requirements to be a godly man. To be a true servant of God. And he gave three words all starting with S. The first, letter, first word was sovereignty. Understanding and committing to God's sovereignty. The second word is being a servant. Having a heart of a servant. The third word was suffering. He said suffering is the tool which God employs in the life of the Christian. To make him a spiritual and godly leader. He tells of a time when he first began to preach. When he spoke at a very small church. The church had a very small room at the sanctuary, right off the sanctuary on the one side of the platform. After he finished preaching, he went into that room. He could not uh, help but overhear a couple of ladies discussing his preaching. One lady said, what do, you, what do you think of the preacher? The other lady said, not bad, not bad. But he'll be better after he has suffered. He knows his scriptures. But his life is lacking. He'll be a lot better preacher after he has suffered. And suffer he did. He nursed his first wife until she died. He later remarried. Eventually nursed his second wife until she died. He then went to live with his niece. To whom he ministered to until she died. It was in this life context. That he wrote that Christian classic. Spiritual leadership. What it means to be. Godly man, a man of Christian character. But the many, there are many purposes to suffering. We just mentioned a few. Becoming more like Christ, greater knowledge of God, spiritual maturity. Here in chapter 12, Paul reveals the purpose of this suffering. Verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. He said, God gave me this stake in my flesh to torment me, to keep me humble. To keep me humble. And we, 
to different degrees of experience that suffering has a purifying effect, does it not? Suffering humbles a man. Suffering breaks us. It humbles us before God. We see that in Peter's life. After he was broken, denied the Lord three times, he had said, I will never deny you. I will die with you. After those afflictions, he was a humble man. Well, likewise with Paul. God used this to humble him. Now, three things that humility produces. Three things that humility produces. Number one, humility leads to faith. True humility leads to faith. There is no other way to faith but through the doors of humility. There is no other doors. Augustine said, the prerequisite for salvation is humility. The first prerequisite. The second prerequisite is humility. The third is also humility. Let me give you guys an illustration of this. I have a cousin in Korea. I met him a few years ago. At that time, he was a freshman in college. Very sick for the most of his life. Three times he was on his deathbed. He has a weak heart, a weak liver. Many times his parents thought he would die. They called us over to ask us to pray for him because he's in the last hour of his life. He's the only Christian in the whole family. A very smart young man. He grew up in Singapore and Japan. He sp speaks four languages fluently. He wants to be a doctor. He wants to be a doctor. He shared with me his testimony how he uh, trusted in Christ in his, one day in his hospital bed when the doctor said good likelihood he, that he won't make it. He was sharing with me how sometimes he gets angry at God. He gets bitter. Because he has friends who are just utterly, who live utterly sinful lives, who hate God, hate Christianity. They're alcohol, they're drinking alcohol, they're greedy, they're, they're selfish. They want, they are going into medicine to to please their sinful lust of being rich. And here he is. He's sick, and he can't be a doctor. He has the mind to, but physically he's too weak. Yes, he gets angry at God. He gets bitter. Now I told him, you should thank God that you're ill. You should thank God for your condition. I said, I know you. Ever since he was young, he was a little brat. Right? Now I hate going over there when I went to Korea. I hate hanging around with him. Because he knew all these things that I, I didn't know. He would ask me questions, I didn't know him, he would answer them. Right? <laughs> I said, you know, if you weren't a Christian, you'd be the most arrogant, conceited, and stuck up guy in all of Korea. And that's an accomplishment, right? That's not, that's not something small. And worst of all, you, you wouldn't have trust in Christ for salvation. It was this suffering that caused humility that led you to Christ. You should rejoice in your infirmity because God used it for salvation. That's what Paul is saying. One thing that the humility leads to is faith. Secondly, humility, humility leads to dependence upon God. Humility leads to dependence upon God. When we come to an end of ourselves, our pride is gone. That is when we begin to depend and trust in God. And we see the example of Christ in that way. Right? We see Christ's humility. Not by saying, you know, no, I'm not God. No, I'm not great. When they worshipped Him, no, no, don't worship me. That's false humility. How did he reflect genuine humility? His utter dependence upon God the Father. Right. John 5.19 The Son can do nothing by himself. 
he, he does only what he sees the Father doing. Verse 30, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and see. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. John 8, 28, I always do what pleases him. John 12, 50, 50, I do just what the Father has told me to say. All these things reflect genuine humility, dependence upon God the Father. And then thirdly, humility leads to prayer. Humility leads to prayer. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Paul said, I pleaded to God three times. He went to God. Suffering produces humility, which produces dependence upon God through prayer. See, a, a prideful person, a conceited person, will rarely pray. You can know if you're humble or not just by looking at your prayer life. If your prayer life is weak, obviously you're trusting in yourself. You're depending upon yourself. But a humble man will go to God and seek the Lord in prayer. Well, this is the answer given to Paul by God in verse 9. Sufficient grace. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Sufficient grace. It is, God is not talking about the, about the common grace given indiscriminately to the righteous and the unrighteous, Matthew 5.45. He's not talking about saving grace, grace given to save man, lost sinners. God is talking about the sustaining grace given to believers. The sustaining grace given to believers. This is the grace that shields believers, protects, strengthens, empowers, sanctifies, and blesses. This is the grace that is active in the life of the believer. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3, The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. This is how we live as Christians. We live by this grace. We serve by this grace. We work. We raise our families. I am preaching this sermon purely by the sustaining grace of Christ. And important to know that while God's common grace is unconditional, God's transforming grace is unconditional. God's sustaining grace is conditional. Very, very important. There's a condition upon which God will grant sustaining grace. It is not unconditional. John Piper said, quote, To be sure, there is unconditional grace. It is the glorious foundation of all else in the Christian life. But there is also condition, conditional grace. For most people who breathe the popular air of grace and compassion today, conditional grace sounds like an oxymoron. But it is true. It is found throughout the New Testament. Conditional promises are woven throughout the New Testament. End quote. And this... Sufficiency, sufficient grace is conditional. It is predicated upon our act, acts before God. It is predicated upon us. Well, then what is the condition that releases this wealth of grace, this spiritual power? Paul tells us in verse 9, His power is made perfect in weakness. Verse 9, 
But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect, made complete in man's weakness. That is the condition upon which God releases his spiritual power and his spiritual grace. There are a lot of stories today. You know, one of my uh, hobbies is uh, watching TVN, right? Uh, great illustrations. Insight to false teaching. It pumps me up. It challenges me, right? To know scripture, to be diligent in right doctrine, to oppose false teachers. One thing that, that amazes me is the power team. You guys see these guys? Right? Guys with like 16-inch biceps. They rip open telephone books for Christ. They break 10-inch they break ice blocks with their heads. And they say, power to God. Is that how God manifests his power? Is that the power of God? No. That's the power of those biceps. Right? That's the power of those chests. Right? I mean, if, if I would rip open a telephone book, Everybody was, that's the power of God. Right? Charlie Sr. would have break open a you know, block of ice. That's not John. That's God. Right? God's power is made complete in our weakness. We see this in, our, in the Old Testament judges. When they're going against the enemies of God, I'll shorten the story. But God said, too many men. If you win, they'll say, duh, obviously 10,000 against 2,000. Who's going to win? God told Gideon, get rid of some of these men. Well, through all these processes, they got down to 300 men. God said, good. Now, when Israel is victorious, people will say, God did this, not man. Right? What is the condition upon where God releases His grace, His, uh, the spiritual power to live the Christian life is through our weakness. It's not through our strength. So Paul comes up with a resolution, verse 10. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. Right? I tell everyone of all my weaknesses. In insults, when someone insults me, I say, you're right. That's so true. All my hardships, I share openly. My persecutions, all my difficulties, I wear them proudly for all men to see. We're in a culture where we hide. We, we put in a closet all our weaknesses, our hardships, our difficulties. Not for Paul. He broadcasts them over, over open air. Why? Because when I am weak, then I am strong. The paradox of the Christian life. When I am weak, then I am strong because that is how God releases His sufficient grace. He re resolved in his heart to rejoice and delight in his sufferings. And specifically in this suffering. Because Paul understood that the Christian life and spiritual ministry is produced by the Spirit. By the grace in Christ. His reputation was gone. His physical strength was spent. His character was called into question. His speaking ability was criticized. He was reduced to say, you know what? I'm just going to preach Christ. I have nothing else. I have no, my, I have no uh, authority. My reputation, everything is gone. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to preach Christ. And if you guys get saved, if you guys grow, if this church flourishes, then it's all the glory to Christ. Right? He committed to lean on Christ and boast of his own weaknesses, his own sufferings.
well, a few closing thoughts. Well, number one, have you experienced the foundational grace of God? All of this is meaningless to you if, you if you're not a Christian. If you have not received the undeserving, unwarranted, free gift of God, salvation of God, all of it is meaningless. Right? Have you experienced that? Just look at your life. God's grace is the most potent, powerful force in all the world. But man, any man or woman receives the grace of God, transforming power. Life is changed. God's grace is effectual. You will see immediate, genuine humility where the person values God above everything else. You will see a repentant, a broken heart. You will see joyful desire to obey the scriptures at all costs. You will seek to fellowship with fellow believers. And the person will live his or her life to the glory of God, not to please oneself. For the believers here, how are you living your Christian life? Right. So just your Christ, not, not ministry yet, but your Christian life. Are you living it according to your flesh, your strengths? Right? Your abilities, your discipline, your knowledge, your commitment? Or have you finally come to an end of yourself and say, I'm going to depend upon God. I'm going to just trust in God. I am weak. I'm just a fool. I'm a flake. I can never keep my promises. I can never read the Bible or pray consistently. I am just a wreck. I'm just going to trust in Christ. I'm just going to believe in God, lean upon Him, for Him to do that work because I can't do it. Are you leaning on Christ? One more. Or two more actually. Are you, are you struggling with people in your life? Right? We all have, to different degrees, a thorn in our flesh, a stake that torment us. And more often than not, it's a person or it's people. Right? There are people in your life who are criticizing you, hurting you, hindering you. And they're just there pointing out your weaknesses. That's their like part-time job. Right? They're there to humble you and point out all your failings. You might be afraid or maybe angry that they might hinder the work of God in your life. Because of that person I can't grow. Because of that person, I can't serve God. Because of those people, I can't, you know, worship Christ. You know what? You're wrong. They do not and they cannot hinder the work of God's grace in your life. They can only magnify and increase that work if you depend upon God, depend upon the grace of Christ. Now I exhort you, beloved men and women of Cornerstone, you know, pray, thank God for them. Get on your knees and thank God for them because they're humbling you. They are. And that humility is leading you to pray. Leading you to grow in Christ. And isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we're seeking? Isn't that our goal? Right. And then finally, um, you know, are you suffering today? Are you going through something in your heart that's just maybe almost like Paul, beyond your ability to endure it? 
you know, know that God's grace is sufficient. Paul testifies to us that God's grace is sufficient. It is sufficient for you to grow as Christians and to serve in the ministry of God. Right? You know, Ben was teaching the mission team um, from the Old Testament. And I was so glad that I was part of that group where I could listen to his sharing. He was teaching us how at the end of Deuteronomy, what does God tell Moses? After decades of serving God, after all the promises of entering the promised land, God tells Moses, okay, you're going to die. You're not going to enter the promised land. Right? You're going to see the promised land, but you will not enter. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses knows this. And at the, the last chapters, he turns to each tribe and he blesses them. The, the, these people will enter the promised land that he's been hoping for all his life. He will not enter. He will die. He knows that. And yet he blesses them individually, uniquely, in a most powerful way. And Ben shared with us this principle. The true servant of God meets the needs of others while his own needs are not met. True servant of God meets the needs of others while his own needs are not being met. Sufferings, weaknesses, difficulties do not prevent you from service, serving others. Now, I can't serve because look, look at all my weaknesses. I can't help anyone. I can't strengthen. I can't encourage. No. These things equip you. They enable you to edify the church. I was talking to a guy a few months ago. You know, I apologize for talking about people at add cornerstone from the pulpit, but who else can I talk about? I don't, I don't talk to anyone else. My life is cornerstone. My illustrations will come from my family and you guys. So I just won't mention names. It's my only promise. Um, he was going through a difficult time. He wanted to take a break, take a time out, because he was struggling so much, so many difficulties in his life. He wanted to step back from ministry, step back from fellowship, because it was so difficult for him. And I told him, and I tell you today, this is a time when you step up. This is when you get most involved in fellowship. This is when you get most involved in ministry. Because this is when you are most useful to God. When you're going through difficulties, right? Because that is, a, that is the tools that God has given to you to edify and strengthen others. Paul said this in the opening of this epistle. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows to you.